Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move this Tuesday, where we're following two big drivers of global economic growth, energy and the consumer. And I have to say, I wish it were better news. Take a listen to this. Europe's energy ministers meeting in Brussels, de facto forced to agree an emergency gas conservation deal today, just hours after Russia announced gas flows through the simply just reopened Nord Stream 1 pipeline will be cut once more. That's going to take it from 40 percent capacity down to just 20 percent and really fulfilling the energy sector's worst fears. Plus, U.S. consumers running out of a different kind of gas, the nation's biggest retailer in the United States. Walmart cut its full year guidance, saying households are in a weakened state and are cutting back on non-essential spending. Then you can add to that consumer products giant Unilever saying it's been forced to hike prices by 11 percent due to what it calls an unprecedented cost landscape. In other earnings news, too, General Motors shares in reverse after reporting a 40 percent drop in second quarter profits and missing expectations due to, yeah, you probably guessed it, supply chain issues and weakness in their business in China. Swiss banking giant, meanwhile, UBS disappointing with their results too, calling the latest quarter one of the most challenging of the past 10 years. The combination of all of this caution, as you would imagine, on stock market trading around the world. Cautious central bankers too. The big question is whether recession fears will demand a policy pivot from the likes of the Federal Reserve and a change in the ECB's rate hike policy trajectory. The problem is, of course, they have to raise rates to fight inflation. And that's the conundrum. Ten years ago today, the then head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, made a promise. If you remember, it was to do whatever it takes to hold the EU together. We are a decade to the day later. New crisis, similar questions. Can the current crop of EU leaders hold together to combat the challenges precipitated by the Ukraine war? First up, energy. EU countries have agreed a 15% voluntary reduction in the consumption of natural gas this winter. It comes as Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warns that Vladimir Putin is using gas supplies as a weapon. Even despite the concession regarding the Nord Stream turbine, Russia is not going to resume gas supplies to European countries, as it is contractually obligated to do. All this is done by Russia deliberately to make it as difficult as possible for Europeans to prepare for winter. This is an overt gas war that Russia is waging against a united Europe. This is exactly how it should be perceived. Claire Sebastian joins us now. A gas war within a broader energy war, Claire. As I mentioned, EU leaders effectively forced to agree a conservation deal today because they've heard now there's going to be far more capacity cuts for the Nord Stream 1 pipeline and it limits their ability to build capacity ahead of the winter, which is the crucial challenge. 
Yeah, the urgency of this, Julia, really stepped up in the past 24 hours when Russia announced that it was going to cut the capacity uh, of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline from, from where it was at about 14, 40% of its full potential down to about 20%. That will take effect Wednesday morning. Look, forced to agree, I think, is the right phrase here. We've seen this before in the case of the oil embargo. But in that case, it took two months, almost two months, to push that deal through with exceptions. In this case, they've done it in five days. It will be a voluntary cut of 15% in terms of gas demand between the beginning of August and, the, and March of 2023. All countries have agreed to that. Now, if the EU triggers what's called a union alert in the case of, of a risk of severe shortages of gas in the winter, then there will be exceptions. Not all members will be subject to mandatory cuts of 15%. It's things like the Baltic states where the electricity grid isn't connected to the broader EU. EU grid Ireland, which is not connected to the broader EU pipeline system, they will be exempted. There'll also be derogations where people can adapt the targets, for example, if gas is a critical input for some industries. So there certainly are exceptions. It is diluted to some extent, but they did get it through. However, there are still major concerns that the variable here is the weather this winter. Will it be a really cold winter and what impact will that have on their ability to build up their storage? And the summer, of course, and the use of air conditioning systems, which is burning through uh, electricity use as well. Um, but the point you're making about the voluntary adherence to these capacity cuts is vitally important, too. Um, just for balance, Gazprom, of course, is saying that the latest capacity cuts are in order to repair a turbine. Western officials, the German economy minister saying this is a, quote, farce. Um, and obviously we heard from President Zelensky there, too. Where are they? Claire, can you give us any sense on where they are on building up capacity ahead of the winter? Because this is going to precipitate whether or not cuts, shortages are required. Yeah, so the EU Energy Commissioner today, Kadri Simpson, said that, that they're above 66% uh, when it comes to, to the gas storage uh, facilities in Europe. The target is 80% by November 1st. So, so they're not too far off, but, but still some way to go. Now, with Nord Stream at 20% capacity, this does put them in a slightly more critical uh, situation. I spoke to uh, Wood McKenzie, an energy consultancy. They say that at 20%, there is still a chance that Europe can build up its storage to about 75 to 80% uh, going into the winter. And that should, in theory, leave them with about 20% left come March of 2023. But, of course, again, I'll say it again, it depends on how cold the winter is. And the other thing to bear in mind is if we end up in a, in a very tight situation this winter, that could feed into what happens next winter as well. So there are long-term consequences here to consider. Yeah, and consumers will be protected before industry, I'm assuming, too. So it could have huge consequences for economic growth. Yeah. Um, Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, a more Russian missile strikes on port infrastructure in Ukraine, this time in the southern city of Mykolaiv. And Odessa once again under attack for the second time since Saturday. But despite the new attacks, Turkey says the Joint Coordination Centre for Ukrainian Grain Exports will begin its work tomorrow. Nick Robertson joins us now from Kyiv. Not only that, there is the suggestion that perhaps caravans of ships carrying grain could be leaving Black Sea ports, I believe, as early as tomorrow. What more do we know? Well, the Joint Coordination Centre is going to oversee all of this. So it's sort of the first step to making sure that the rest of the UN agreement can can work. So 
We know from the Russian officials that they've sent their team to Istanbul to be part of that center. We know from the Ukrainian officials we spoke to yesterday, they'd sent their team uh, to be part of the center yesterday. So uh, once that is up and running, it seems that the sort of the, the oversight infrastructure to make sure that ships stick to the, the channels that they're supposed to go on, that the inspections of those ships and their cargoes can go ahead, that that is in place. It, it may be a little bit ambitious to think that ships can get away as early as tomorrow because it seems that the, the, the sort of the, the, the coordination uh, center is really only going to be getting up and running tomorrow. That's, that's the official line from, uh, from, from the Turkish authorities. But at the port level, the port that was struck today is that the, 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 the sort of the port near Odessa that was struck, uh, Zatoka, is not a sort of part of the port infrastructure of Odessa that's used for shipping grain. It's more of a sort of a seaside town just along the coast. But the concern there, of course, is that these uh, the, the missile strikes came in very close to the area where these ships would be transiting through along the Ukrainian coastline, out towards Turkey uh, and out towards global markets. So it really does, although not directly targeting Odessa, again, throw into question the safety of the ships carrying the grain. Mikhailov, uh, the targeting of the port there, much further north from Odessa, not one of the ports that is going to be used to export grain, more of a sort of shipbuilding uh, port. Uh, and the, the strikes there probably more to do with Russia's potential advance on the southern front around there. That seems to be what the increase of strikes there. But again, it all calls into question just how safely this grain deal can be executed. Yeah, it's deeply unnerving and it undermines confidence too, which is perhaps the point. Nick, great to have you with us as always. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. To the United States now and Walmart shares are set to tumble in early trade as its shock profit warning adds to fears of a recession in the United States. Walmart saying inflation-worried customers are stretched and dialing back on all but the essentials. Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, there were two things in this for me. Walmart, of course, the biggest retailer in the United States, was already saying back in May that they had too much product. Now they're cutting prices, but it's also the consumer behavior that's adapting to the point that we made there, which is they're shifting to cheaper products and focusing on the essentials. Yeah, and the problem is because because consumers are spending more on fuel and on food, they're spending less on higher margin categories like retail, right? So Walmart putting out this profit warning saying that, look, it expects operating income to fall 13 to 14% in Q2, 11 to 13% for the fiscal full year. Profits also to fall 8 to 9% in Q2 and 11 to 13% in full year. Look, the CEO, Doug McMillan, saying that food and fuel inflation, these two things that we talk about a a lot on the show, Julia, have really shifted how people are spending, right? So you are seeing more people spend uh, on essentials, on things that they absolutely need, which is a lower margin business for Walmart. And that leaves less discretionary income for categories like retail, which is a higher margin business. But one retail analyst also saying it's not just those factors, it's also higher costs for Walmart. Neil Saunders pointing out, look, all of this is allied with a higher cost of doing business, with transportation costs, uh, labor costs, and a whole host, I think we can pull it up here, of other overheads shooting up over the past 12 months. 
Walmart has not passed these costs on in full, which has an impact on its profitability. Of course, Walmart, its whole brand, Julia, is centered around being a low-cost retailer, right? So unlike perhaps some of its competitors like Target, it can't really fully pass on those costs while maintaining that brand of being a low-cost retailer. That said, to your point, Julia, Walmart is the largest U.S. retailer. So what happens to Walmart certainly matters, and people start to wonder, well, will we see the same in terms of Target, in terms of Costco, in terms of Macy's, a pure play retailer? And you can see those shares are down pre-market on the back of this warning. So uh, it is yet another warning from a retailer about excess inventory. And this is perhaps the strongest warning in terms of consumer spending because of high inflation and categories like essentials, like fuel and food. There's so many brilliant points in that. And you're absolutely right. It's the transport costs. It's because they're so huge hiring people and the forced pressure there of higher wages as well. It's all combined and it gives you a really great sense of not just this sector, but beyond Amazon on Thursday. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point, right? I mean, who who among us, which company among us is shielded from a right. higher operating cost, right? Labor costs, transportation costs, uh, hi- hiring costs. I mean, there are still uh, 1.9 open jobs for every one person looking. And so uh, wage pressures for companies. So uh, I would argue that there is perhaps not a company out there that is shielded from this sort of larger macro environment. But to your point, we're going to be watching very closely to hear what Amazon says, especially on the heels of this warning from Walmart. Yes, a shudder from investors even today. We shall see. Rahel, thank you. It's a great job. Rahel Solomon there. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other headlines around the world. In Russia, the trial of U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner is considering the medicinal use of cannabis. The two-time U.S. Olympic gold medalist has been held in Russia since February on allegations of attempted drug smuggling. An expert says a sample of her hash oil requires further study as there is no global standard on what constitutes medical cannabis. Fred Plankin is on the story for us. Fred, the problem for for Brittany here is that Russia does have a firm stance on this. Another nerve-wracking week for her. We've got the defence lawyers continuing to present their case and she's going to be cross-examined, I believe, by the prosecution tomorrow. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Julia. She's going to take the stand tomorrow where she's going to testify, uh, her lawyers have said, and she can be cross-examined as well, as though they have said that it is obviously up to her whether or not she's actually going to answer any of those questions. But we do expect her to be in that court and to uh, then take the stand and possibly expect to hear from her as well. So that's how that trial is progressing. But I think you're also absolutely right to point out that right now we're in a really, really crucial phase for the defense. It's currently the defense that's calling the witnesses. And one of the things that indeed did happen today uh, is that the defense called an expert to talk about the medicinal use of cannabis outside of Russia. Obviously, there's no question right now that Brittany Griner um, is pleading guilty, said that yes, she did have medicinal cannabis inside those cartridges, vaping cartridges on her as she crossed into Sheremetyevo Airport outside of Moscow. However, she is saying, and her defense is saying that... um, This was something that essentially happened by accident, that in a rush, she packed her bags, that she flew to Moscow and obviously then had those uh, uh, cartridges on there, which are contraband inside Russia, but which are prescribed to her in the United States because of pain. And essentially, the the expert witness said today that that is something that does happen outside of Russia and also said that, quite frankly, some of the analysis that was done on the cartridges, uh, he believes that additional analysis is still required to see how much uh, uh, THC cannabis was actually inside those cartridges. So 
we're sort of seeing the strategy of the defense come together where on the one hand they're saying she's pleading guilty that's something that should be taken to account she is someone who has done a lot for basketball not just internationally but in russia as well is therefore someone who is of high character and that uh, essentially all of this was an accident that happened that she did not mean any harm as she crossed into Russia. Whether or not that's going to lead to any leniency uh, from the court is obviously something that remains to be seen. We do know uh, from past cases that a lot of people do get convicted in Russian courts. So it certainly is an uphill battle. But if you, if you speak to Brittany Griner's lawyers, they do believe that they possibly do have a case for a certain amount uh, of leniency. But tomorrow... Uh, Julia, is going to be a big, big day for Brittany yeah. Griner. We're obviously going to be watching very closely how all that unfolds. Yes, we will. Fred, thank you. Fred Plaikin there. Now, in just a few hours, Pope Francis is set to hold a mass in Edmonton, Canada, after making a historic apology to Indigenous people. On Monday, the pontiff said he was deeply sorry for decades of abuse at residential schools run by the Catholic Church. Indigenous children in them were separated from their families and thousands are thought to have died either from neglect or abuse. And just into CNN, Russia has announced it will pull out of the International Space Station after 2024 and plans to form its own orbital space station. The United States and Russia have collaborated on the space station for more than 20 years. We'll be speaking with the head of the European Space Agency on the future of its partnership with Russia and more later on the show. In the meantime, straight ahead, not an overnight fix, a warning from a huge humanitarian aid group about the Ukraine Green Deal. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The humanitarian aid group Mercy Corps welcoming the grain export deal between Russia and Ukraine as 50 million people around the world see the threat of famine edge ever closer. The group says the grain deal will help ease some of the shortages but will not end the global food crisis. Mercy Corps has more than 5,400 members operating in over 40 countries, including Ukraine, Yemen and Somalia, distributing emergency cash, food, water and other essential supplies. And joining us now is the CEO of Mercy Corps, Jada Doyen McKenna. Jada, great to have you on the show. Um, your bigger point here is essential and we'll talk about it. But I just I want to get your sense of, of this shorter term grain deal to get grain out of Ukraine. You were cautiously welcoming it on Friday. Then, of course, we've had the attacks. What, what do you make of the situation today? You know, the attacks prove just how fragile this deal has always been and will continue to be. Um, even if Russia were to behave perfectly, uh, we are still talking about collecting agricultural goods out of an active war zone um, where people have been displaced, where they're able to plant fewer things to begin with because of shortages, um, where roads and even the ocean, there, there are mines in these. So they're really... Um, was never a guarantee that all of this food was going to make it out or even what condition some of it is in as it's been sitting in silos. But this was a, a welcome first step and, and we'll see. But but we were always very cautious about it. Yeah, I think uh, unfortunately many people share your skepticism. Your bigger point here was this is not going to end or even significantly alter the trajectory of the global food crisis as it stands today. It's it's far bigger than the 20 million tons that 
the international community are trying to extract from Ukraine. And you recently spoke to U.S. Congress and I, I looked at your speech and one of the lines that stood out to me immediately was food systems in many of the countries in which you're working on are on the verge of collapse. Can you just explain from your experience of the teams that you have working all around the world what that looks like? So prior to the invasion in Ukraine, we were already sounding the alarms and, and mobilizing against um, a, a huge famine in the Horn of Africa right now, um, in Somalia and, and Ethiopia and parts of Kenya, um, where they've had about four seasons of drought. Um, and this is all coming on the heels of, of a world that was already at, on its knees with COVID, right? So you were already working with populations that had been suffering from supply shortages, um, just this, the same ones that we've been struggling with, um, that had had some employment, had, had gone away during the COVID virus with illness. Um, and you also still had several countries that were still in active conflict zones who were heavily dependent on, on food and, and food imports, including Yemen, for example, Syria, um, and so what happened with Ukraine is that, you know, Ukraine was a breadbasket um, and many of these countries like Yemen and Syria and many African countries were already dependent on those imports. So losing a breadbasket on top of this was tough. But what has been catastrophic has been the general war has not only decreased the food availability, but it's also increased it's increased the prices of food, fuel, fertilizer, all key inputs into the system coming in the midst of all kinds of climate change disruptions. Uh, this is a, a huge, large global issue that, that we need to be urgently addressing. I think the key point there, particularly for the Horn of Africa, was your point about climate change too, and that they're suffering extreme drought. So in addition to tackling COVID, the impact of rising fuel prices, grain prices as a result of the war in Ukraine, they were already suffering extreme damage uh, to the environment and to their capabilities yes. as a result of climate change. Yes. And this is why it's really important for, for the world um, and particularly donor global North countries um, right. to continue to invest in these countries, to give them, to continue to invest in their agricultural systems and their supply chains and to invest in their resilience to this climate crisis because this is not a one and done situation at all. Um, we have a series of these climate shocks coming impacting the most vulnerable people. And if we don't work on their local agricultural systems and continue to ensure kind of free passage and, and of goods around the world and free trade, uh, we will just be doing this over and over again. And the challenge today, and I read in preparation for this interview, that the global humanitarian and food security assistance funding shortfall now in 2022, and maybe you can give me the latest figures now has increased by 50%. So can you quantify that for me? What are we talking about? And what's been little discussed, but has been, has been the differing treatment of those that have had to flee Ukraine to surrounding nations versus perhaps those that are fleeing other parts of the world. And I just wonder whether the dissimilar treatment that we're seeing for those people also filters into what we're seeing for the ability to raise money for some of these challenges yes. too. Um, 
Let me tell you what it means for a family, because I think that really brings it home. Um, So before in Yemen, we were partnering with the World Food Program, and we were providing food baskets that could feed a family of four um, with four items, you know, oil, uh, wheat, grains, uh, different things to cook. Now, that food basket that was once built for four, even though most families are larger than four, is now down to one item and can only feed two people. So that is a mother, usually a mother, the, the, the woman of the household, um, making allocations of food that was once enough for four, trying to dole, now it's just enough for two and trying to dole it out amongst her family. So that that's what this looks like. Um, and, and what this looks like for those fleeing uh, because of their lack of ability to get basic things like food um, is that they are, you know, they are increasingly being pushed to the back of the line um, as as Ukrainians take precedence. And, and as they should, I, I wish everyone got the same treatment that Ukrainians were getting. I want to make clear there's no begrudging that treatment. But unfortunately, we've also seen donors um, try to move money away from other conflicts in places like Myanmar and Venezuela to send more funds to Ukraine. And the reality is every place needs more. Simply moving things around on the chessboard right now, it it only exacerbates the problem in these countries. And and ultimately, I I do fear greater division um, between global north and, and global south countries over this. Yeah, your point is so important. It's not that the Ukrainian people are any less important and their crisis is not to be underestimated, but the problems elsewhere in the world didn't go away as a result. Um, Jada, just very quickly, how how do your team feel about that when they're going to a family and and giving them a lot less and knowing that it means that more of them are going to go hungry? It's it's very disheartening. And and part of what we try to do when, when we work with communities um, is we try to provide hope and, and we really work with the communities so that they can thrive in the midst of everything. Um, and what what is really especially upsetting um, is, you know, the disparate treatment is on display around the world, right? And it's not, it's not lost on um, and my colleagues in the communities that we work with in the Middle East and, and Africa, um, they recognize how Syrians were treated or how others and, and what's happening now. Um, and so I fear that not only are people suffering more, but, but now they can blame that a little bit on someone else. And, and, and that is that's it's terrifying, really, and, um, and unnecessary. And, um, and and I wish that didn't happen. Some of our country programs are also having to make do with less as resources are being taken away um, because of dealing with things. So we've we've dipped into our own reserves to pay more for fertilizer and other supplies for communities that we work with. Um, We've dipped into that ourselves to to still try to continue to to alleviate the suffering during this time. All all human life is equally precious and we... We have to act accordingly. Um, Jada, thank you for your time. I, I just wanted to ensure that our viewers understand that these things are still happening. There's no, there's no easy solutions here. Jada, thank you. Jada, no, Rosa, thank you so much. Thank you, the CEO of Mercy Corps, and thank you to you and your team as well for all the work you're doing. 
We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The IMF just announcing that it's once again slashing its global growth forecast due to what it calls a, quote, gloomy and more uncertain picture for global economies. The IMF now projecting a growth rate of 3.2% in 2022. That's almost half a percent lower than its previous outlook. It's also raising its global inflation projections too. U.S. stocks today reflecting the more uncertain economic environment too. A lower open across the board. Stocks pressured, I think, by Walmart's warning on inflation, saying rising prices are hitting its customers in their wallet. Walmart shares falling some 9% with other retail names lower in sympathy too. It's not all bad news. However, on the consumer front, Coca-Cola is raising its profit guidance, saying consumers are so far willing to pay more. McDonald's, however, reporting weaker than expected revenues amid what it calls a challenging environment. But profits did, however, top estimates. And it's an ugly start for crypto exchange Coinbase as regulators reportedly investigate claims it's been allowing people to trade unregistered securities. The company is trading lower after the opening bell, as you can see down Almost 8%. Coinbase's chief legal officer, though, pushing back at reports at the reported probe by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, saying, quote, We are confident that our rigorous diligence process, a process the SEC has already reviewed, keeps securities off our platform. Coinbase stock has lost almost three quarters of its value this year. Paul Monica joins me now. Paul, so uh, Coinbase responding to an alleged report about something that's allegedly going on, which uh, always amuses me. But I think we have to talk about precisely what's going on and put it into English for our viewers. What's the concern about allowing retail consumers to trade securities, things that are designated securities rather than digital assets? Yeah, that I think is the key question, Julia. To be fair to Coinbase, the laws surrounding the trading of digital assets, coins and tokens are still very murky and Coinbase wants more legal clarity from the SEC and other regulators. Now, the SEC obviously would argue that the rules that they have are being uh, enforced by regulators and that Coinbase and other crypto exchanges should only be listing certain assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, and not some of these other tokens and uh, digital assets. So that's one problem. You also have an insider trading probe into Coinbase too, a former product manager uh, allegedly uh, putting uh, out uh, you know, some information uh, to people ahead of when Coinbase was going to announce them. So that's clearly uh, an issue as well. But I think, Julia, right now, the bigger problem is just that Bitcoin prices have plummeted this year along with other cryptos. And that's really hurting uh, Coinbase. You know, as you noted, the stocks lost about three quarters of its value this year. Robinhood has also been hit pretty hard because of the crypto meltdown and the stock meltdown, obviously, too. Yeah. On a basic level, if something's designated a security, then it comes under the purview of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that has implications for how the exchange operates and how it's registered. But also a lot of the people within this industry, it's the whole point of having these digital assets is is that they're not securities and that they're decentralized from that in a way and are treated very differently. To your point, and I couldn't agree more, Paul, it's the sell-off and the pain that retail consumers now are facing that's making all regulators around the world step up and say, perhaps there needs to be more protections. Yeah, this has been kind of the proverbial wild, wild west of uh, the markets uh, as of late. And I think that investors who have been hurt 
by the crypto crash are, you know, clamoring for more protection and whether or not that's going to come from the SEC, from FINRA, from other regulatory bodies, I think still remains to be seen. Gary Gensler has obviously stepped up with the SEC. Some people in crypto land would argue that maybe he's been too aggressive and needs to uh, pull back. But I think really what we need, Julia, is just clear rules that yes. everyone can follow. And we don't have that yet. Yeah. And that's what the industry is saying. Look, we're following your guidelines. Give us the rules and we'll follow them. But until we don't, then it's uh, open to interpretation. Hmm with significant consequences. Paul, thank you. Thank Paul you. Okay, so to come, cutting ties in space as the war in Ukraine rages on. We speak to the director of the European Space Agency about its global partnerships and the future next. Welcome back to First Move. The Kremlin says the Russian space agency will pull out of the International Space Station after 2024 once it's met its current obligations and then plans to build its own space station. The US and Russia have collaborated in the International Space Station for more than 20 years. And just a few days ago, the European Space Agency said it was cutting ties with the Russian Space Agency on a mission to search for life on Mars. The ExoMars rover was designed jointly by Russia's Roscosmos and the ESA. It would have been Europe's first planetary rover. Joining us now is Josef Ashbacher, Director General of the European Space Agency. Uh, Josef, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Um, Much to discuss. Let's start with the Russian Space Agency's decision to pull back after 2024. Are you surprised by that decision? Um, Hello, Julia, and hello, everyone. I'm not surprised uh, because we do hear this kind of news regularly from Russia, uh, especially after the the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, But if you very carefully listen to what was said, it was saying uh, that Russia will pull out of the space station after 2024. After 2024 could, in theory, also be 2030. Uh, So we do not know when Russia will really pull out. Uh, The other part of the news says that Russia will meet its obligations until 2024, which means at least for the next uh, two years and and a half, uh, there will be uh, operation of the space station, I would say uninterrupted operation of the space station. So this is good news. uh, But uh, of course, we do not know what happens afterwards. And uh, we, I would say, wait and see how this develops. I know I'm talking to a scientist, though, when the um, precise definition of after 2024 matters, and it truly does, to your point. Hypothetically speaking, though, should they choose to do that and go it alone? What impact would it have on, on Russia's space capabilities? Because there are other partners that they could choose to work with that also have strategic ambitions. China, for example, India, another country. Yeah, no, for sure. China is uh, probably the closest partner of, of Russia mm-hmm. and they are already working uh, together. In fact, they have uh, already plans for uh, what is called an International Lunar Research Station, which would be the equivalent of the gateway, which uh, NASA is putting together now with uh, with ESA and uh, some other partners. So, yes, uh, uh, Russia is certainly looking to the eastern part of the world in terms of uh, putting its cooperation together. And uh, also on our side, uh, the European Space Agency, as you said before, Julia, uh, we have been cutting our ties on ExoMars. And I can tell you this was not an easy decision because this was uh, a huge investment, 15 years of time, 
him a huge amount of money, a lot of researchers and engineers working on ExoMars for, for many years. And uh, we would have been ready this year to, to launch, in fact, in September, uh, next in, in two months from uh, from now. Uh, but unfortunately, we cannot do that. So now we are reassessing our cards. Uh, we are looking on how else we can uh, go forward with ExoMars. But yes, uh, the, the world, unfortunately, I should say, is uh, dividing again, is polarizing again, uh, which is something we, we are not very happy about in space because uh, for some things in space, we need each other. And simply space... Uh, is a huge undertaking and it would always be much easier, much better if uh, the major forces are working together. It's heartbreaking in many ways because space exploration and cooperation always managed to transcend politics in the past and some incredibly uh, difficult periods in the past. Is NASA ultimately an option? Is the United Kingdom? And do you think there's a way back given we're talking decades of cooperation with Russia over this project. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, the UK uh, is a member of the European Space Agency and is yeah. a very strong member. So with the UK, we're working extremely well for well, actually since the beginning of ESA, they are founding mem member of ESA. Uh, but yes, with Russia, uh, with, sorry, with uh, the United States, uh, we are uh, reinforcing our cooperation. I have uh, just had uh, extremely good meetings with the administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson, who was uh, here in Europe uh, just a couple of uh, weeks ago. Uh, he spoke to our council of the ESA member states, and uh, we we did discuss on how to move forward. Uh, we have uh, plans uh, after the ISS, as you know, the ISS in any case uh, uh, will discontinue after 2030. We also have plans towards the moon, we have plans towards Mars. Uh, so yes, uh, the most likely a uh, consequence of the of the war in uh, uh, in Ukraine uh, is that uh, the European Space Agency will stronger even even stronger even better work with the NASA which we have done for many decades but this partnership will certainly intensify very quickly any sense of a date on on that with with ExoMars I mean it was initially planned for 2020 obviously covid got in the way then we had a date for for September this year and now the latest uncertainty are we talking years is the cost going to be more uh, years or can you do it quicker yeah. than that? No, we are certainly talking years. This is clear because half of the mission was uh, Russian parts. Uh, there was the, the lander, which was uh, uh, mostly Russian. Uh, and yes, this has to be redeveloped and, and restarted. So uh, we have to start from scratch for some elements. Of course, the rover is mostly European with uh, very few exceptions. And there uh, we, we continue uh, working on it. So we are right now assessing uh, the, uh, the, the consequences and how we can uh, move forward. Uh, we have uh, worked very closely with NASA to help us in defining some of the elements they could eventually contribute. It's not yet uh, decided how we uh, move forward with ExoMars, but it is clear uh, whether it's a European solution or an American European solution, uh, certainly it will take a couple of years until we go there. Maybe yeah, the, it, the good thing is that the science uh, is still unique because what we plan to do with this rover is to dig into the Mars uh, surface, take a probe off the Mars surface and search for life. And uh, this uh, science will still be there because there will be no other uh, drill that goes into the surface and therefore looks for life on Mars. So from that point of view, yes, uh, uh, Mars is a couple of billion years old. Uh, we can probably wait another couple of years in order yeah. to discover whether that's life or not. It was why it was so important. I was, I was so fascinated by this. Um, you know, I was recently looking at your publication of the Exploration Mo 
roadmap um, for the European Space Agency 2030 plus. And it does point to greater independence in, in research and development, um, I think for better or worse in many ways. But the element in the room that we're not really talking about is the, the other player here, of course, which is the private sector. And I just wondered what you make of the vast and swift development of private companies like SpaceX, Starlink, for example, as beneficial perhaps to to the world as their technology is. It's an unregulated space and their development, particularly in lower Earth orbit, is dramatic. Should we be more worried about what we're seeing there? Uh, you're absolutely right, uh, Julia, that the, the development is extremely fast. And what we see through the commercial sector now, you, you mentioned uh, SpaceX, but there are many other companies uh, powered by venture capital money in Silicon Valley, but also in Europe, where we see more and more uh, small and medium-sized uh, companies developing in the space domain. So this commercialization is really taking off, is putting, uh, is really firing up uh, this new space race, which we are seeing right now. And that's huge, and that's uh, great. And I think as... Uh, public uh, entity like the European Space Agency, also NASA, what we want to see is really this uh, sector to develop. And uh, I have put a, an agenda in place uh, a year ago when I became Director General of ESA to really uh, support this commercialization and make sure that uh, we do develop this sector because that will drive and that will uh, really fire up uh, our uh, space activities. And of course, you have uh, in the US uh, SpaceX, uh, I really would hope that we get something similar also built up in Europe. Uh, and uh, this is uh, one of the priorities which I have put in place for the European Space Agency. Yes, because otherwise there's going to be no room. There's going to be no room for private <laughs> European companies and, and British companies and wherever else because of SpaceX and the US will have taken all the um, uh, all the available opportunity. Um, Joseph, very quickly, um, I want to ask you about the James Webb Telescope. We have about a minute left. What What was your reaction to seeing those images for the first time? Oh, this was just uh, amazing. I mean, if you just imagine for a moment that you almost go back to the to the Big Bang, uh, 300 million years after the Big Bang, uh, uh, this is uh, amazing. And you see galaxies being formed. Uh, I mean, this is uh, for any scientist, uh, for anyone, actually, for any citizen. It's just, uh, it's just uh, incredible what we have seen there. And I'm also very proud that uh, Europe is a very strong partner of the James Webb Space Telescope. You probably remember that we have launched it on Christmas Day from uh, French Guiana yes. with an Ariane 5 rocket, and uh, we are participating in instrument and, and in the science. So really, this is a huge mission and will we'll open a lot of new windows uh, and uh, uh, will give us a lot of uh, new insights about our universe and our very origins uh, of humankind and uh, our universe altogether. Yeah, it makes my eyes water and gives me a frog in my throat every time I see those pictures. I don't think it will get old. Um, Joseph, great to chat to you. As always, come back soon, please, because as always, I've got millions more questions to ask you. Joseph Ashbacker there, thank Director you. General of the European Space Agency. So thank you. OK, stay with CNN. Coming up, the first Kenyan presidential debate is about to take place. But what if only one candidate turns up? We're live in Nairobi next. back to first move. Kenya's presidential debate going ahead in the coming hours, despite one of the two candidates saying he's pulling out. Kenya's opposition leader, Rella Odinga, saying he would not share a stage with his rival, William Ruto, currently the deputy president. Now, despite this, organizers still think Mr. Odinga could show up. If not, his opponent will get the full 90 minutes to himself. Larry Madawo speaks to both presidential candidates in this report. We will win these elections.
We are very confident we are going to win this election. The 55-year-old Ruto called himself Hassler-in-Chief, a populist appeal to Kenya's largest voting bloc, the youth. Our plan in, in, uh, under the bottom-up economic model is to focus on infrastructure that not only drives our economy, but intentionally, deliberately creates jobs. What is the difference between you as a candidate and your main opponent, Raila Odinga, who's one, who you were allies before? I have a plan. He doesn't. When I listen to their campaign, they don't really have the, the, the detail on what they want to do. He's a good old man, but I don't think today he has the capacity to pull this country from where it is. At 77, former Prime Minister Odinga is running for what he says is the fifth and last attempt to lead Kenya. I'm younger than uh, President uh, Biden. I don't think that age has anything to do with it. I think it's about the plan that somebody has for a country. If you were to win the presidency, what do you need to do fast to try and fix some of the many problems that Kenya faces? We don't want to see a Sri Lankan syndrome manifesting itself here. Uh, in the country. So we have several options that we are going to uh, look at to keep the costs of essential goods uh, down in order to ameliorate the suffering of our people. Both sides have accused each other of corruption and both claim to have the solution. We run the real high risk of running this country using cartels and people who have not been elected, you know, people who will be in shadows. It's interesting you mentioned cartels because your main challenges accuse you of being corrupt, that if you become president, then this country will be even more corrupt than it is right now. What's your response to that? We are going to build the institutions to make sure that any corrupt person, including the president, can be prosecuted. More than $16 million is stolen from the Kenyan government every day. President Kenyatta claimed last year a staggering figure for a poor nation. What you call budgeted corruption. When we address this, what we are going to get as saving is going to be more than what we require to fund the, the, the projects that we are, we are talking about. So your plan is to deal with the corruption so that more money is available. But every government promises that, but it just never happens. We are not going to make any compromises. And nobody is going to be indispensable, uh, including myself, in the, the fight against corruption. And finally, swimming in Israel's beautiful Mediterranean coast waters shouldn't be something to wobble over. However, take a look at this. A ghostly swarm of jellyfish. They've been clogging up fishing nets and desalination plants. Plus, it's costing Israel some $10 million in lost tourism revenue. Now, that is a sting in the tail. Exports uh, point the finger at climate change, saying it's raising water temperatures and creating ideal conditions for jellyfish to breed. Ouch. But they are beautiful. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.